Mr. Speaker, this language is deeply disturbing. As a grandfather, it shakes me to the core when I imagine that children could be exposed to this deeply disturbing, degrading language in British Columbia Public Schools libraries. Will this NDP Premier please answer to concerned parents, grandparents and families in Abbotsford and throughout this province, why is the sexually explicit book, Eleanor and Park and others like it, available in British Columbia public schools for children as young as 11 years of age? I'm asking as a parent, as a grandparent, to the Premier, to the Minister, if the words I just read were inappropriate and unacceptable and clearly disturbing to this House, how is it that those same words are appropriate to be read by a sixth grader as young as 11 years of old in our public system? How are those words safe and inclusive? I'm Peter McCulley. Welcome to the Today in BC Legislature Report. That's Conservative Party of BC House Leader Bruce Banman who made the second controversial statement in as many days to mark the start of the current session of the B.C. Legislature. Wolfgang Deppner, legislative reporter for Black Press Media, joins me to highlight the discussions in the House. Wolfgang has a long resume of multimedia reporting, as well as teaching. He holds a master's in journalism and a Ph.D. in political science. Thanks for joining us today, Wolfgang. Peter, thank you for having me. Much appreciate it. The B.C. Conservatives doubled the size of their caucus recently when Bruce Banman crossed the floor from the B.C. United to join the Conservatives, which gave them official party status. Yes, absolutely. Some have called the Conservative Party of B.C. the latest expansion team in B.C. politics. John Rustad, the leader of the Conservatives, and Bruce Banman, the House leader, did not waste any time making news they started off in the first question period of the fall session, and it was quite the exchange between John Rustad and the Premier. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker. Thousands of British Columbians, many of them from minority communities, have been protesting against SOGI 123, which was originally introduced by the BC United Liberals. Parents are concerned about the sexualization of their children in this NDP government's education system. Will the Minister admit that SOGI 123 has been divisive? an assault on parents' rights, and a distraction on student education. Premier. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and I welcome the member to the House as the leader of his new party. But i got to say, this is not an auspicious start. When you talk about the issues of the day for British Columbians, cost of living, housing, we heard from BCUP, health care, addiction, mental health, to come into this place, to use the authority of his office, his new party, to find a small group of kids in our province, to leverage all of that to make them feel less safe at school, less safe in our community, to feed the fires of division in our province and bring culture war to British Columbia, it is not welcome. And when he sat on this side of the House, he supported those same policies, Honourable Chair. It is outrageous that he would stand here and do this. He sees political advantage in picking on kids and families and teachers and schools who are just trying to do their best for kids who are at risk of suicide, Honourable Chair, shame on him. Choose another question. Thank you, members. Leader of the Fourth Party Supplemental. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And it's very clear that we're talking about a uniparty in this House, and that's fine in terms of it. But to the Premier, Mr. Speaker, 
And what I find most offensive is that the division is being created by what this government is implementing. There are people, there are thousands of people taking to the streets. There are thousands of people protesting at school board offices. There are kids that are being part of this because Members. they are disturbed at what's happening in their schools. This isn't about attacking a particular group of people, Mr. Speaker. This is about having a policy that is inclusive, that is anti-bullying, that is supportive so everybody feels safe. But right now, we have kids that are running home from school going to the bathroom because they don't feel safe in the school. And that is this uh, government's, that is this government's fault in terms of it. Mr. Speaker. Question, please. In my riding, just recently with the protests that happened last week, two young Indigenous girls were suspended from school for participating in a protest. Now, whether or not that action was appropriate, I can tell you. The mother of those two Indigenous girls is outraged at the fact that those kids are now being excluded from education. This is not what we want to be able to see. We Question. need to be able to see an education system, quite frankly, Question. that is accepting of everybody. The question, once again, to the Minister or to the Premier, if he cares to take it, will the Minister actually look at this, look at the divisions that this is creating, look at the divisions that Soji 123 is creating, and replace it with a less divisive approach to anti-bullying in our schools? Minister of Education. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, I'm so saddened that the member opposite is talking about this. Here we are trying to create inclusive, safe spaces for our children, where every child belongs. And the member is the one who's trying to create these divisions. Mr. Speaker, we are committed to provide those safe and welcoming spaces. We want to make sure that every child feels included and they, feel they can be themselves in the schools. And that's what we are committed to. That gives you a bit of a taste of what question period was like when the legislature resumed sitting, when it started its, its fall session. I've covered the legislature now directly for only a few months, but I've followed BC politics for many years. I must admit, I have never heard that sound in the legislature before. It certainly marked a bit of a departure from recent question periods. I would also say that it introduced a new sound to BC politics. And, and of course, I continued the next day when Bruce Bamman asked the question that you introduced at the beginning of the podcast. Yesterday, we didn't have that same level of controversy in the question period. Uh, but those two clips give you a sense of what the BC Conservatives have brought to the legislature. The legislature is now more diverse, having a, a bit of a fourth party. Obviously, you have the NDP, we have BC United, BC Greens, so three parties established before the BC Conservative Party of BC gained official status. But now the sound and the dynamic of the place has changed. It has made question period more interesting, one might say. As I say, it has given the whole legislature a, a different sound. Any number of speakers, certainly from the NDP, certainly from the BC Greens, have raised concerns about the tone in the legislature. The Conservatives, for their part, have said that they're just speaking on behalf of constituents. And they do have a constituency. The Conservative Party of BC does have a constituency. BC United, as the main opposition party, finds itself now trying to walk a fine line. On one hand, it faces a push from the right side of the political spectrum, but it is still the largest opposition party. And 
it is still in many ways the government in waiting unless proven otherwise and it has been using its time to focus on bread and butter issues to hold the government accountable on housing on economic issues on public safety it has for the most part avoided these sort of controversial subjects that the conservatives have brought up during the first two question periods let's talk about that second question period bruce banman probably generated lots of chatter around the water coolers everywhere when he stood in the house to talk about explicit content available in certain fictional books in public school libraries in British Columbia. That caused even more outrage or more controversy than what John Rustad had said the day before. The quote that Bannon cited is unprintable and certainly not repeatable on air. Bannon, to his credit, officially withdrew the comment. He apologized to the House after the Speaker had asked him not to use that type of language. But the words were out there. And again, they changed the whole tone within the legislature. Again, that marks a departure for more recent question periods. I stand here today as a distraught father and grandfather. I stand here with parents in Abbotsford who are deeply concerned about sexually graphic and explicit content available in certain fictional books within our public school libraries to children as young as 11 years of age. Mr. Speaker, this language is deeply disturbing. As a grandfather, it shakes me to the core when I imagine that children could be exposed to this deeply disturbing, degrading language in British Columbia public schools libraries. Mr. Speaker, Will this NDP Premier please answer to concerned parents, grandparents and families in Abbotsford and throughout this province, why is the sexually explicit book Eleanor and Park and others like it available in British Columbia public schools for children as young as 11 years of age? Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I just want to say, not just as a Minister of Education, but also as a parent, that our schools are spaces which are safe, inclusive, and welcoming for all students. And the teachers are using resources that are age-appropriate, audience-appropriate, to give those values, give those teachings that are so important to create those welcoming environments. So I just want to reiterate this, Mr. Speaker, that the resources that teachers are imparting, that teachers are teaching, are age-appropriate and they are audience-appropriate. Party Health Director Supplemental. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm asking as a parent, as a grandparent, to the Premier, to the Minister, if the words I just read were inappropriate and unacceptable and clearly disturbing to this House, how is it that those same words are appropriate to be read by a sixth grader as young as 11 years of old in our public system. How are those words safe and inclusive? Minister of Education. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I cannot comment on the particular books that the member is mentioning, but I can talk as a parent whose children are going to the public school system, who have gone through the public school system, and I have never encountered anything inappropriate being taught to my children. I take such pride in our public education system. I am so proud of the teachers who are working every day. I, in fact, raise my hands to all the work that is happening in our schools. 
Our schools are very diverse places, Mr. Speaker, and as leaders, as school leaders, it is our responsibility that we respect that diversity and we are making our schools as safe as possible. Wolfgang, there's been lots of media attention the past few years to affordability issues, supply and demand of housing, rents, affordable housing. I understand there was an exchange in the House with the housing minister, Ravi Kalon, to that effect about the government's agenda. That clip between him and Peter Millibar speaks to the dynamic within the House about housing. The BC United, again, focusing on bread and butter issues has been attacking the government's record on housing for quite some time, whereas the government has been responding by pointing out, look, when you, BC United, formerly known as BC Liberals, were in power, you guys didn't do anything on housing, and we're now having to play some catch-up. And that actually highlights the dynamic between the main opposition party and the government when it comes to housing. Let's be very clear. This next uh, question, we 100% do not agree with the NDP government on their handling of, and that is affordability. The NDP's new normal is the highest rents in Canada and the worst housing affordability in North America. Full stop. Doesn't matter who the Premier tries to point the finger at for blame, they have taken precious little action over the seven years they've been in government. For people like Berta Gozer, that's turned apartment hunting into an episode of the Hunger Games. Burdick says, and I quote, it becomes like Hunger Games, we're fighting to get the place. End quote. People deserve a break from the NDP's middle class squeeze. Making housing affordable means you make it less expensive. So when will this premier and this government finally give people like Gertig a break? Minister of Housing. Thank you so much, Honourable Speaker. And again, thanks to the member for the question. And uh, certainly it is a challenging time for some families in British Columbia. That's why we've put such a focus on ensuring that we have affordable housing being built in this province. There was a time, Honourable Speaker, when the other side was over here, where they would take realtors to trade missions to Asia because they thought that was a good way to sell the real estate that we have here. There was a time where there was a housing minister that sat across the way that said, if you can't afford it, just move. Honourable Speaker, that is not the approach we take. We're taking an approach that is changing laws, which will be happening this session, around allowing more units to be built on single-family lots, taking steps to work with local governments to create more certainty on costs, more certainty around decision-making, so we can get more housing coming online. In the end, all speaker, it's going to require government investment. You cannot build the level of affordability that we need in our communities without government being involved. That's what we're doing, historic level investments in affordable housing that's helping families across the province right now. Wolfgang, very recently, the homeless count in communities across the province was released, the updated numbers. What do the studies show? Peter, the new homeless numbers that came out of Metro Vancouver really highlight the problem. Compared to 2020, the number of recorded homeless went up by 32% to 4,821 to be precise. That survey looked at 14 communities across Metro Vancouver and the numbers are up in pretty much every community, Vancouver, but also the growing suburbs. If you expand the view to the rest of the province, the numbers are up there as well. I just picked up a few numbers here. Fort St. John had 76 individuals considered homeless in 2020. Number went up to 102. Terrace went up from 107 to 156. Williams Lake, 51 to 77. Cranbrook, 63 to 116. 
Penticton, 114 to 166. Port Alberni, 125 to 163. So that's six communities across the province, every region of the province, and the number of homeless people is only going up. Of course, the issue is affordability. And again, if you look at the numbers, rentals.ca, September 2023, Vancouver had the highest rents in the entire country based on some almost 30 communities. Vancouver, a one-bedroom average rent in Vancouver, $2,988. That's as of September 2023. Burnaby is in third place across the country in this list. Kelowna, ninth place. Victoria, 11th place. Langley, 14th place. Surrey, 15th place. The most affordable community in BC on this list is Abbotsford. The average rent, one bedroom, Abbotsford, $1,591. If you look province-wide, and if you compare BC to the rest of the country, the average rent in British Columbia September 2023, rentals.ca, $2,675. So that's for the province. That's the highest rate for the entire country. Cheapest place to rent is in Saskatchewan, $1,102. So that gives you a sense of the difference here. The numbers are what they are. BC average home price, $958,424. Numbers are dropping a little bit, but it gives you a sense as where we are in terms of average home prices. Average home price in Greater Vancouver, August 2023, $1.283 million. That is for all types of housing. If you look at the taxed housing in Vancouver, $2.351 million. A townhouse, $1.227 million. A condo, $805,000. If you look at the income that you need to be able to afford some of these places, August 2023, RateHub.ca, which is a site that allows you to calculate mortgages and that sort of thing. The minimum annual income to live in Vancouver is just over $246,000. Here in Victoria, it's $184,800. Rental prices, purchase prices, BC has the highest figures when it comes to these metrics. And the NDP government has recognized this. And certainly since David Eby has become premier, we've heard a lot of policy initiatives starting in November of 2022. We've seen more initiatives come forward in the spring of 2020-23 and more initiatives, more actual legislation is going to come forward in the fall. The housing minister, Ravi Kalon, has promised a very ambitious housing agenda and some of the legislation is going to increase density. Efforts have been underway for some time now to speed up permitting. Their efforts on the way to make secondary suites legal across the province, build more housing around transit hubs. Those are the, the big pieces. And then there are any number of sort of small initiatives underway as well. Government has recognized that housing is the big issue. Now, it's one of many issues, but certainly heading in, into the session, we're going to see a lot of legislation on housing. And housing is going to be I would argue the main topic of conversation in the legislature when it comes to substance. In many ways, this government is going to be measured by how much more housing will deliver. And I think then the government itself has recognized that it needs to do more around housing. I'm going to put on my political science hat here. In many ways, it is trying to deal with a problem without having all the tools necessary to deal with it. For example, interest rates. interest rates have gone up significantly since, since the spring of 2022. 
interest rates are outside the government's control. Interest rates affects mortgage rates. Interest rates also impact whether developers want to build something. The provincial government depends on working with lots of partners, nonprofits, private developers, and they have their own cost calculations. When developers, when nonprofits find it more difficult to borrow money, they're going to be holding back when it comes to building. Then, of course, there are all sorts of other issues, supply issues, material, labor issues. There's a bit of a disconnect, and, and people have pointed this out, there's a bit of a disconnect between what the government wants to do in terms of building more housing and what the government actually forecasts it will be able to build over the next few years. How the government will try to resolve that disconnect is going to be interesting to see, I think. When Today in BC continues, we'll listen into an exchange between Premier David Eby and opposition leader Kevin Falcon in the House, and as well, our legislative reporter Wolfgang Deppner tells us about discussion of penalties for BC ferries. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. As you might expect, Wolfgang, at some point, and it occurred on day three in the legislature in the current session, Premier David Eby and the leader of the opposition, Kevin Falcon, got into an exchange in the House. Under BC United Safer BC plan, we've made it very clear we will always make sure there are consequences for all criminal behavior. Again, when will this Premier stop enabling prolific offenders and start putting the rights of victims to reoffend ahead of the rights of the public to know that they can be safe in their communities? Premier. Honourable Speaker, this member wants us to forget his record, right? When he cut the chronic offender program as finance minister, he made British Columbians less safe. That's the program that we brought back in. When he cut mental health services for young people, those young people grew up and became those prolific offenders. When he failed to put in place the care that people need around addiction and mental health in the 16 years that they sat on this side of the house, where do they think those people went, Honourable Chair? I can tell this is a sore point for the Leader of the Opposition, but that is his record. He needs to own it, and we are taking action to keep British Columbians safe. That exchange dealt broadly with the issue of public safety, and it happened shortly after Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General Mark Farnworth had tabled new legislation responding to concerns among municipalities and other groups that the current decriminalization trial in British Columbia has worsened public safety. Back in late January, this decriminalization trial started Shortly thereafter, concerns emerged about the effects of it. And a number of municipalities have tried to come up with bylaws to respond to those effects. But those bylaws have not been satisfactory. And the province promised that they would come forward with a province-wide legislation that would create some certainty around the province to avoid a patchwork uh, approach. On Thursday, that legislation dropped and saw the light of day. It broadly expanded the public areas that will be off limit to public drug consumption. 
So under the trial, government has essentially decriminalized the use of a certain amount of certain types of illicit drugs. When this trial first started, the trial made it clear that consumption couldn't take place near childcare facilities and schools. After some concern, the provincial government expanded the exclusion zones to playgrounds, spray parks, and watering pools. This new legislation confirms the exclusion zones and broadly adds to them. The exclusion zones now include sports fields, public parks, beaches, outdoor recreation areas, public entrances to residences, to businesses, to libraries, uh, public facilities. And it also creates a six-meter buffer around bus stops. The idea is to let the public know, okay, you can consume drugs in these public areas. So now the concern from advocates and others is that it is going to push individuals who are dealing with addictions, who are consuming these illicit drugs, it's going to push them back into more secluded areas. It's going to push them back into their homes and that it marks a reversal of the decriminalization trial. Now, the premier has acknowledged that the previous system didn't work, but he also has made it clear that he doesn't want to go back to the ways of criminalizing drug possession and drug use. So it tries to strike this balance between treating individuals who are dealing with addictions with, with compassion, without punishing them, without using the law to go after them, but also trying to deal with issues of public safety. Now, response to the law, it's not yet enforced yet. It's only at first reading. It only got tabled on Thursday. So there's still a lot of legislative work left to be done. The BC Greens, for example, have also made the point that it's one thing to expand these exclusion areas. But if government is interested in helping these individuals, it also needs to make sure that they have the necessary supports. The BC Greens have argued that these supports are not in place, that the government hasn't fully fought this through. Now, BC United, on the other hand, has made the argument that decriminalization should not happen at all. Kevin Falcon has, again, repeated his party's promise that if in government it would scrap decriminalization and deal with the problem in a different way. He has promised that if in government, his party would invest $1.5 billion to increase the support for mental health, to create more support for people dealing with addictions, to help them recover from addictions. Kevin Falkenbaugh has acknowledged that government is responding to public safety concerns. He thinks it's insufficient. And he's also made the point that in some ways it adds to the confusion that's out there. So two very different responses. The BC Conservative Party has also questioned decriminalization. It too wants to end the trial. So you have a range of reactions, a range of responses. BC Green saying it's not going to solve the problem. What the government really needs to do is to invest in, in various supports. And of course, BC United and the Conservatives are critical of decriminalization itself. Wolfgang, thanks for summarizing the drug use bill. It'll be interesting to see if there's more fine-tuning coming in the next session. I did hear some discussion about penalties for BC ferries in regards to cancelling sailings. Could you explain that for us? Yeah, absolutely. Starting in the next fiscal year, April 1st, there will be penalties for cancellations. $7,000 on major routes, $1,000 on minor routes. Now, these are penalties that BC ferries will have to pay. The public will not see higher fares to help pay for those penalties. Fares are going up, but higher fares 
will not cover the penalties. So BC Ferries will have to find the money from within its own budgets to help pay for these penalties. Now, it should be said that a good chunk of the money that BC Ferry uses comes from the provincial government. So in a roundabout way, the provincial government is penalizing itself. If you factor that there were about a thousand staff-related cancellations last year, these fines could add up. But as I said, the provincial government is essentially penalizing itself, albeit in a roundabout way. Now, what sort of an impact is this going to have? Again, reactions vary. BC Greens, Adam Olson, who represents North Sandwich and the Islands, which is a riding very much dependent on ferries, he takes a wait-and-see approach. Only time will tell if it makes a difference. Trevor Halford, who is the transportation critic for BC United, He's skeptical. He doesn't think that these penalties are going to make any sort of a difference in terms of improving service at BC Ferries. It's an interesting move. There are any number of issues that impact why sailings get canceled that have nothing to do with these penalties. BC Ferries is subject to federal regulations when it comes to staffing. You have to have a certain number of people on a boat before it can ship out. And if those numbers are not available, the sailing doesn't take place. It's a matter of safety. Now, the provincial government has been investing more money, more resources into training. It has been expanding its recruitment efforts, but that takes time. BC Ferris is also competing against other companies. There is a general shortage of mariners. Adam Olson's point is that it needs to pay its staff more money to make the jobs more attractive. BC Ferries, again, to be fair, has said, look, we're investing more, we're doing more for training, but these things will take time. And ultimately, there are some questions about how much of a difference these penalties are going to make. Again, the penalties are not in place yet, so it's really hard to judge. It's really hard to make an assessment how effective they will be. But I would say it shows, at least certainly from the government's perspective, that it wants to improve the service. We know the stories from this last summer. We know the stories from the summer beforehand. There are lots of issues with BC Ferries. Whether or not this is the tool that's going to fix all those problems, again, uh, to use that old line, it remains to be seen. That's Wolfgang Deppner, the legislative reporter for Black Press Media, on the Today in BC Legislature Report. If you have suggestions or comments, send us a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, YouTube, and Google Podcasts. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media.